Now our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 12. If you'd open your Bibles there, please, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 8 as we continue on in our journey through this book of Romans. And we're coming off of the verses that we saw last week where the Apostle Paul said, you need to develop your mind. I think this is important. You need to develop your mind. And of course, you need to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, but then you need to go to work on developing your mind so that you can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Then he begins verse 3 with that conjunction for... So now he's going to explain exactly what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is as you develop your mind. Now the reason why I'm bringing out the emphasis of mind, you're going to see that too in the third verse. He's going to stress how you think. Because in verse 6, as we'll read through it this morning in our scripture reading, you'll notice since we have gifts, and the word for gifts there is charismata, from which... This charismatic movement gets its title from that very word, charismata. And why I think that's significant is because much of the charismatic movement says it bypasses your mind. Clearly, clearly an accurate biblical understanding is a movement that is accurate to the scriptures is a high dedicated use of the mind. And you'll notice what we read in verse 3, for through the grace given to me, And you'll notice grace is always given. It's not earned. It's not merited. Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. So you can see here that grace gift is a faith operative gift. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we have gone through the entire matter of spiritual gifts in our study of pneumatology, which I would encourage you, it's in our library, you can get that whole study and go through that. Also, Mr. Kelly's doctrine class, they cover this when they go through pneumatology, all of the spiritual gifts. There are 19 total spiritual gifts that are listed that come from Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians. Eleven of the gifts we would classify as permanent gifts. Eight of the gifts we'd classify as temporal gifts. And some of the gifts are speaking gifts, and some of the gifts are non-speaking gifts, which we're certainly going to see this morning as we work our way through this. I think the chronology of the book of Romans also is critical to gift theology. And I'll explain all that as we work our way through it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word of God and for the study of it to follow later. Will you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Father, we bow before thee today with thankful hearts and thankful minds. We certainly, having read this passage, want to thank you for grace that you've given to every one of us. 
What amazing condescension that is. The fact that you cared about us as individuals, the fact that you elected us and saved us, it's beyond our ability to grasp. We don't deserve grace. In fact, we don't even deserve to be in your family. We realize, Lord, you had a program with National Israel, and by amazing grace, you grafted us in. And then, the only thing we are in a position to do when it comes to grace is simply bow and say, thank you. We pray for each one of us, Lord, that we'll accomplish our perfect will that you have for us with our lives. I pray we would function always as a good body in this church, where we're firing on all cylinders, each person fitting in to where they fit in. I pray we would function right. May your will be done through us, Lord. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this flock. We thank you for how you have used this ministry, multiplied it. It's humbling, Lord. It's just humbling for the fact that you've allowed this ministry to reach out to the world. And we thank you for those who pray for it. We thank you for those who support it. We ask that you bless each one of them individually and abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we saw last time, God wants every believer to discover the perfect will that he has for their lives. So a logical question that God's people would ask is, what is God's perfect will for my life? Is God's perfect will for your life that you sell everything you own and go to some foreign country as a missionary? Is God's perfect will for your life that you pack up and head off to some school, some theological institution? Is God's perfect will for your life that you move away from where you live now and go someplace differently. What is God's perfect will for our life once we've experienced the saving grace of an almighty God? You do have to wonder if those kinds of things are God's perfect will, and you have to wonder why, if that is God's perfect will, didn't Paul say that when he wrote these letters to churches? Why didn't Jesus Christ say that when he addressed the seven churches of Revelation? Unfortunately, there are those that will tell you that that's God's perfect will for your life. Years ago, we had a missionary who came to a chapel service, and he said that everyone should think in terms of being a foreign missionary, and I can appreciate his heart to want to reach out to people that are lost. I appreciate his passion, but then why didn't Paul say that? Why didn't Jesus Christ say that? Now, there's no question that God wants to use every single believer. In fact, we saw last time we are to become a transformed believer by the renewing of our minds on the word of God. So just exactly what is God's perfect will for our lives? Well, Paul explains that in these verses. In verse 3, he kicks it off with that conjunction 4. He says, let me explain it. Let me explain what God's perfect will is for you. God's perfect will for your life is that you'll be able to recognize, develop, and utilize your unique individual spiritual gift for the glory of God and for the people of God. That's God's perfect will for every one of our lives. That we'll be able to recognize, utilize our own individual spiritual gift that God has given to us for the glory of God to the people of God. Dr. John Wolverd said there's a divine purpose in the life of every Christian and spiritual gifts keep with that purpose. Now last time we were together, we saw the kind of life that we have to have if we are going to discover what the will of God is. We have to have a life that is lived sacrificially. We have to commit ourselves as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, pleasing to the Lord. We have to have a life that's not being conformed to this world. We have to have a mind that's being transformed by the renewing on our minds on the word of God. And by doing that, 
God says, I will let you pursue those objectives right there, and I will let you discover my specific will for you. And I will let you figure out what your gift is. And in fact, I'll use your gift. Now, when we use the term spiritual gift, what we're referring to is some special, unique grace, gift, and ability that God gives to a believer that enables them to minister at a very unusual level in making a vital contribution to the body of Jesus Christ. A spiritual gift is a supernatural enablement that's different from natural talents. It's different from natural abilities, although talents and abilities can come into play. God's will for every believer is that they develop to the point where they discover what he's given them the thing to do. They discover that. And I want you to notice it's a grace gift that's given. That's what Paul says in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, this is not earned, it is not merited. And before Paul launches into this discussion, he qualifies this, saying, I'm saying this to all of you. I'm saying this to every one of you. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. The pronoun everyone is singular. The pronoun you is plural. So he says, I'm saying this to every single individual. Every single individual in the family of God and collectively to all individuals in the family of God. The grace has been given to me to instruct you as to what God's perfect will is for your life and to determine what God has given you to do. Now, to discover God's perfect will for your life, as near as I may grammatically determine, it begins with how we think. It begins with the mind. In fact, you'll notice that three times in verse 3, he uses that word think. Don't think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. So, as near as I can determine, you have to have a sensible mind that thinks practically, logically, in analyzing self, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and understanding exactly what God has given each of us the gifts to do. We're not to think illogically. We're not to think irrationally. Every one of us has a responsibility to think with honesty and integrity. Now, there are two specific ways that Paul says one will think if they're going to discover God's perfect will for their lives. And the first thinking way is they won't think more highly of themselves than they should. Notice verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now, really, this first method of thinking is a challenge to be truthful and honest and realistic with ourselves. That really is what this comes down to. I mean, you have two dangers when it comes to this challenge. The first one is to overrate yourself. The second danger is to underrate yourself. The right danger is to accurately rate yourself. This is not some challenge that you should never analyze what you have been given the gifts and abilities to do. This is a challenge to take an honest, introspective analysis of what God has given you, the tools and the skills to be able to do for him. What has God given you the grace to be able to do? And this is really a call to don't exaggerate here. Don't exaggerate. This is a big problem in religion. It's a big problem in spirituality. People tend to, especially when it comes to religion, they want to think a little more highly of themselves than they really ought to think. 
I don't understand how that works, but it works that way. This has been a real threat to Christianity. Apparently, it was a real threat to the Church of Rome because Paul kept bringing up the subject. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Apparently, that is a real threat to the people of God. People can become so arrogant that instead of seeing themselves accurately and honestly, instead of dealing with themselves realistically, they can begin to think delusionally. And when it comes to the Bible, people, they can get just arrogant and proud. The reverse should be true. The more we know the scriptures, the more humble it should be. Now, let me make an observation here, because sometimes a person who stands for dogmatic truth is misinterpreted or branded to be proud when that's not true. There's nothing wrong with knowing truth and defending truth and standing for truth. That's not the same as pride. What is being talked about here is don't think of yourself other than in accurate ways. Paul says you discover God's will, and in order to discover God's will, you're going to have to think honestly, accurately, truthfully. You have to have an understanding mind about what your gifts and skills are and what your abilities are. God doesn't want someone thinking nonsensibly about themselves. In fact, you'll go nowhere until you know what you can and cannot do. And the reason why I think he stresses, you have to think this yourself. This is given to me, I say, to everyone among you. is because people in the church won't tell you the truth. I mean, you try about anything for God, and people in the church will probably say, you're great at it. may not even be true. It's just people are nice in the church. They're kind. And let me give you an illustration. A couple of weeks ago, Brian and I were going through that song, Give Me Oil in My Lamp. We sounded like sick dogs. You applauded us. (laughs) Well, I sounded like a sick dog. He didn't. But you applauded us. Well, that wasn't great singing. We were just trying to get through this little chorus and explain what we're going to do. That's what I'm telling you. When it comes to church life, that's the way it can work. Many years ago at a church we were in, there was a woman. She just loved to stand up and sing solos in the congregation. She did not have the skills to do it. So when she would stand up and sing, most in the congregation are saying to themselves under their breath, when is this misery going to end? And nobody has the integrity to go up and say, look, you don't fit in with this. This isn't what you do. You can have a great ministry, but this isn't the place for you to minister. But she was proud of the fact that she could get up before the people and sing. It didn't enhance worship. It brought it down. It brought it down. It's not God's will for someone to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And that's what Paul's driving home here. He's saying, if you want to know God's perfect will for your individual life, you have to think realistically and honestly. Don't put yourself down. Don't underrate what you do, but don't overrate it either. Don't put yourself in a category or level of what you can or can't do. There's a pride in people that tends to think more highly of themselves than they ought, and no one, and this is the point, no one will achieve God's perfect will for their lives thinking like that. When... It comes to our spiritual gift. We don't want to elevate ourselves above what it is. We want to realistically analyze it. God wants us to give careful thought and analysis. He does want us to examine ourselves. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with examining yourself truthfully and honestly. 
and coming to terms with reality. I mean, that's apparently what God expects every one of us to do. We analyze what's going on in our bodies, we analyze what's going on in our minds, and then we analyze what we have the ability to do. And we don't want to get above and beyond what we have the ability to do. Now, Paul discovered his gift. He said it earlier in this book of Romans. He said it in chapter 11, verse 13. I'm an apostle. I have the gift of an apostle. In fact, he says, I magnified my gift. And let me just give a personal illustration from our own life. I never intended to be a preacher or teacher of the Bible. I never intended to do this. That was not my goal when I went to school. My goal to go to school was to learn the Bible. My brother Tim said, look, if you really are interested and serious about that, you ought to check into a school in Grand Rapids. He had graduated from that school, and he said, you really ought to go and check into that school because if you're really interested in learning the Bible, then that's where you ought to go. I'd been in radio. I'd been in a radio career, and because I had been in that career, I thought, well, I just want to learn the Bible. That's why I'm going to school. I don't intend to be a preacher or teacher. I just want to go learn the Bible. Maybe I can have some type of ministry to people in the entertainment world because I knew some of those people. Well, while I was in school, I got a job at Kriegel Publications and then eventually got into sales and eventually ended up as sales manager. And I thought, well, that's going to be a great career. That's apparently where we're going to be. I'm still not looking to be a teacher or preacher of the Word of God. I'm not looking at that at all. I'm not soliciting that. I'm not thinking I deserve that. I'm not politicking to get some teaching ministry. I'm not in any way trying to do anything. Well, one weekend... Two men from a seminary were traveling, and they came to church, and I happened to be teaching doctrine. And they came into the class. It was a holiday weekend, and they were just traveling through. They decided to duck into the church, came into the class. After the class, a man walked up to me from that seminary. One was a teacher in the seminary. The other was his son. And the man walked up to me, and he said, listen, God's given you a gift. He's given you a gift to teach his word. Now you take it, you polish it, use it for the glory of God. Never forgot that. At the time, I didn't even realize the impact of that. I thought to myself, well, that's nice of him to share that. It's a good, nice compliment. I thanked him for the compliment. But from that point on, God started opening door after door after door to go in churches and preach the word of God. Now, is it realistic for me to think in terms that you may have a gift? Is that thinking more highly of myself than I ought? No. It's pretty realistic. And then when you look, as John mentioned, we have over a million downloads of people that are downloading things. I got a letter Friday from a guy who said, I went through college, I've gone through seminary, but I'm going now through the things that you have online because I'm learning the truth for the first time in my life. I would say, no, I don't think it's a stretch to say God's given a gift. There's nothing wrong with that. But keep it in the realm of reality. I didn't deserve it. I still don't deserve it. That's God's grace. And what Paul was saying here is analyze yourself. Analyze yourself. Ask and see what God's given you the gift to be able to do. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Think realistically. Think truthfully. Think honestly. Give a true assessment. Don't try to think yourself more higher than it is. And he said, if you're thinking that way, God will show you what the gift is. Which brings us to the second area of thinking. One will think realistically and soundly 
about himself and spiritual gifts. Verse 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, what God says is, I want you sound in recognizing things that pertain to spiritual gifts. These are grace gifts. I want you thinking healthy, seriously, sensibly, soberly about the subject. I don't want you irrational. I want you knowledgeable about the topics he's about to talk about. And there are six steps that he lays out here to sound thinking. Number one, God is the one who gives each believer a faith gift. That's what he says. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. See, ladies and gentlemen, it's God who makes the decisions. We don't determine who gets what gift, and I don't get a gift because I want it, and you don't get one because you want it. It's God who determines this. He determines who he's going to give gifts to, and it's just a fact of reality that he makes the determination. Secondly, God's family has many members, but they do not have the same gifts. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same gift. So he said, I want you to realize God's the one who makes the allotment to people. He's the one who gives people gifts, and there's a diversity to those gifts. So people that are going around saying we all have to have the same gift, they're not dealing with what's true in the scriptures. We're all different. We all have diverse gifts, and they're all needed. Which brings us to the third method of sound thinking. God's family members are one body in Christ. Verse 5, so we who are many are one body. Now there's a unity to this. There's diversity in this, but there's a unity. When we function together as a family of God, we need different gifts. Now, it's true. Some body parts are, I guess we could say, quite frankly, I think this is realistic thinking, more significant to our function than other body parts. We could, for example, get along without a foot. You'd have a very difficult time. You could do it, but you'd have a very difficult time getting along without your eyes. So we could say, okay, there's diversity, there's unity. There can be a sense where one part would be a little more perhaps public and perhaps necessary, but all are needed because there's a family being formed in the body of Jesus Christ. The fourth method of sound thinking is God's family members are individually connected to each other. In verse 5, and individually members of one another. We need to understand this. We're a family here. We're a family unit in this church. Someone said, you know, my right hand has never had a fight with my left hand. The body of Christ is supposed to be a unified body where we're working through things and we're working together and we're moving toward a united front as a family of God. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. We're all connected to each other here. We need each other. We need to function as a unit. The fifth method of thinking is God has given individuals differing grace gifts. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. These are grace gifts, and they're not the same. I mean, let's face it. If you look at the body parts, an armpit is not as glamorous as a mouth or nose, but it's needed. It may not be as glamorous or glorious, but it's a needed part of the body. Not sure what it's needed for, but it is. But he's saying, look, we're not the same. We're not the same. But 
we have differing grace gifts that have been given to us by the Lord, which brings us to the sixth area of sound thinking. God's individuals are to develop their own gifts. Verse 6, according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So what Paul says is, here's the way you think soundly about gifts Each believer has one. We all need each other. It's all important to the body of Christ. We're all connected to each other. Yes, there's differing gifts. We need to analyze ourselves to see what it is that we can do, what it is that we can't do. We need to be honest with ourselves and looking at that. And then he launches into a spiritual gift list of seven. And the first one on the list is the gift of prophecy. He says in verse 6, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Now, the gift of prophecy was a gift where someone got a direct revelation from the Lord and communicated that revelation to the people. That's what prophecy was. He actually got a direct message from God, a revelatory gift from the Lord, and this gift was giving him the ability to communicate God's truth to the people right then and there. It was a message from God to the people right then and there. And also, it was a gift that enabled them to communicate God's future, the future plan and program of God. We could classify this as a temporal gift because Paul said it was a temporal gift. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, whether there be prophecy, they shall be done away. So we know that there was a temporality to the gift of prophecy, and Paul classifies it as a temporal gift. And in the early days of the church, there were no written Bibles. The gift was critical to revealing truth. And as a spiritual gift, it seems to have shut down around the year AD 60, I think a little before, which I'm going to say in just a second. And about 35 years later, the ultimate prophetic book was written, the book of Revelation, which was written in AD 95, and that completed the scriptures. So there's no such thing as the gift of prophecy anymore. Guys that say, I got a message from God, they don't know what they're talking about. The messages from God are already here in the word. Our job is to study to rightly divide the scriptures. That's the responsibility we have. Now, Paul had the gift of an apostle. That was a temporary gift. It passed off the scene with the apostles. Romans is the only one that mentions the one revelatory gift of prophecy. Romans, as you'll notice here, doesn't mention tongues or it doesn't mention knowledge or healing, which were other revelatory gifts that were mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And I find this fascinating and I find this critical to doctrine. 1 Corinthians was written about, let's see here, AD 55. Early on. Romans is written about three years later. Now you're getting later in the development of the church, and it's about AD 58. Then you have 1 Peter written later than that, AD 63-64. So Paul gives his list in Romans at least three years after he wrote 1 Corinthians. It's more than just a coincidence that a lot of the sign gifts aren't mentioned here. Why? They're gone. They've shut down. Prophecy was still operative. By the time you get to Peter's writings, he breaks it down into you have utterance gifts and non-utterance gifts. You have speaking gifts and serving gifts. But when Paul wrote Romans, this gift of prophecy was a gift. Now, I think that certainly what this would tell us as the church is we have a responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God 
And we have a responsibility to teach the prophetic passages of God that are in the Word of God. So when churches are jumping over or neglecting a book like Revelation, or they're neglecting a book like Daniel, or they're neglecting a book like First and Second Thessalonians or Matthew, they're actually shortchanging their responsibility of what God's given them because there's no question God wants prophecy taught in the church. Which, by the way, the adult class is going through right now. They're going through biblical prophecy and doctrine. It's an important doctrine. So there's gift number one, the gift of prophecy. Gift number two is the gift of service. Verse 7 says, if service in his serving. Diakonia is the word. It's the word from which we get our English word deacon. It's a gift that means to serve God in the context of the church. And by the way, that is the context of the service, the context of the church. It's a gift that serves in a variety of ways. It's not isolated to one group. This gift is a gift that someone gets a supernatural ability from God to just want to serve in some capacity. You don't have to beg them. You don't have to plead with them. It's like God just drives them to do it. And there are many ways in God's church where people serve. They help, they set up, they take down, they take meals, they decorate, they visit, they work in nursery, they help with security. They help with sound system. I mean, there's a lot of service that goes on in a church this size. And one who has this particular gift to serve just loves to serve. They have a gift. They excel at it. They're there. They want to do it. They have a gift. They have a gift of God. The third gift on the list is the gift of teaching. We pretty much have covered that, but it says, if service in serving, or verse 7, he who teaches in his teaching, didascalia. Now, that's an interesting word didactic. It speaks of not only having the ability to give the instruction, but also having the aptitude for taking in the instruction. What I would understand this to mean is to be a true teacher, you have to actually set aside your opinions and go after truth. And then you have to take in truth, and then God gives a supernatural ring to it, an ability to grasp it, and it seems to me that one who's truly gifted to teach has a supernatural gift of study. John Stott said, this is probably, in most churches, the most neglected gift today, true teaching, true teachers, gifted teachers. He said thousands of people go to churches But there are very few gifted teachers that are in those churches to teach them. And what a privilege we have to have great writings and books written by some of the greatest minds and teachers that have ever lived, such as Lewis Perry Chafer. Lewis Perry Chafer is a teacher that, quite frankly, is in his own league. His theological, systematic theology, which I still contend is the best ever written. The eight-volume set of Lewis Berry Chafer systematic theology has influenced the world. The books that we get today, where guys are writing on prophecy, such as Dr. John Wolverd, such as J. Dwight Pentecost, such as Dr. Charles Ryrie, Floyd Barackman, Buswell, all the theologies that are written today basically stem from that monumental work of Dr. Chafer. He was an incredible student, an incredible teacher. And in the course of my years, I've known many with this gift. And I've also known some who thought they had it, they didn't have it. And instead of being honest about it and saying, I don't have that gift, 
which would be the right thing to do, say, I don't fit in there. I've got other areas I can fit in, but I don't fit in there. There are some who just basically say, because it gives me the privilege of standing up before people, I'm going to do it. But what they don't realize is James warns on that, man. He says in James 3.1, Be not many among you teachers, knowing you'll receive a stricter judgment. It's serious business to stand before people and say, this is what the text of Scripture is saying. The fourth gift is the gift of exhortation. What a beautiful word that is in verse 8. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. The gift of exhortation, parakalo, come beside someone and you're able to encourage them and exhort them in the things of the Lord in a way that just really is uplifting. That's a gift. That is a gift. And boy, do we need it. We need it. This is a discouraging world. We need people with this gift who in the church can put a proper theological spin on things, who can come up beside us when we are in those low moments and say things that just really pump us up. They encourage us. There are those who are very gifted to be able to do that. I know some in this church, I could put names to this. They're very positive and they really uplift you when you see them coming. It's just such an encouragement because they're going to encourage you in the things of the Lord and they're going to really reinforce what you're doing. Then there's the fifth gift, the gift of giving. I want you to notice that, verse 8. He who gives with liberality. Metadidas is the word. Give or share is the word. It's a Pauline word. It's only used five times in the New Testament. Four of those times it's used by Paul, one time by his close associate, Luke. It's a supernatural ability that gives a person the ability to give way above and beyond what most people give. Now, everybody in the church is to be giving to the work of the Lord. We all have a responsibility to do that. But a person with this gift is way above the norm. This person is a person who gives to the work of the Lord and to the needs of others and just does it at a very unusual, special level. And a person with this gift is vital to the church. It's interesting to me that we can observe that Paul's editorial comment about this gift He doesn't actually comment on the act of giving, but on the attitude of giving. He said the attitude that one is to have when they are utilizing this gift is an attitude of liberality. In other words, one with this gift utilizes the gift, very generous, very quiet, very unselfish spirit, no thought of self-gain, just an attitude of liberality. Now, the gift of giving is a supernatural enablement of God. And Paul is making that clear here. And we are to be giving to the work of the Lord as God has prospered us. That's all of our responsibilities. Paul will develop that later in this book of Romans. Donald Gray Barnhouse said every believer is to give to the Lord. And if you don't, he'll take it by some other means. One minister who I greatly respect, who's not a guy who hawks for money. So he didn't give this illustration to hawk for money. He said, I've observed that if one with the gift of giving stops giving liberally, God will dry up the resources because the person forgot why God blessed them in the first place. One with this gift is just functioning at a greater level than the average people. That's the gift of giving. All of these gifts are supernatural gifts where a person functions above the normal group of people. Now, the sixth thing on the list is the gift of leading. You'll notice that in verse 8. With liberality, he who leads with diligence. 
leading in diligence. Now, in some churches, men fight for power. Crazy, crazy fights for power. I mean, people want dominant limelight authority. We had a fiasco in Pocatello, Idaho. I mean, we had two guys wanted to be Awana leaders because they liked the uniform. I've never seen anything like this. I'm scratching my head watching these guys. I want to be the leader. I want to wear the uniform. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And that's exactly what was going on. There are people with an attitude of their power-hungry tyrants. They're looking out for limelight power, dominant power. They would rather just stand up and lord it over the people rather than lead the people. But this gift of leading isn't like that. This gift of leading is given to a person and enables them to lead, direct, rule, govern in a right way. In fact, that's what the word means, to lead and to govern and to preside over. And certainly one with this gift will be able to first lead himself or herself in the right and true ways of God. I mean, if you can't lead yourself, you certainly are in no position to lead others. So a person with this gift has tremendous discipline to be able to lead himself, and the gift of leading is a gift. It's a gift. And it's a gift that wants to lead people in the things of the Lord, a supernatural gift. Now, he says and qualifies this gift as being a gift that is given in diligence or used in diligence. I mean, that's what he says there, he who leads with diligence, which I understand that particular word to mean this leader, this kind of leader, is able to make decisions. This kind of leader, he thinks things through, prays about things, looks at things, analyzes things, but he's decisive. He's not going to drag it on for months. A person with this gift of leading is able to analyze what needs to be done. They're able to think it through. They make decisions that are right. They're blessed of the Lord. And they do it with a semi-regular decisive speed to it. That's what I understand in that word with diligence. And the seventh gift is the gift of mercy. And boy, we need that one too. With diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is a supernatural gift that enables one to show compassion to other people, especially when they're hurting. They're in hurting moments, helpless moments. Oftentimes, one with this gift is just able to come alongside them and uplift their spirits. This person with this gift is able to relate to people that are hurting, and they do this with cheerfulness. In fact, the word with cheerfulness, that prepositional phrase with cheerfulness, indicates there's an upbeat spirit to them. They're not downers. They can come alongside anyone in any context and just be refreshing to them, merciful to them, helpful to them. Paul says, you want to know God's will for your life? You transform your mind on the word of God, and then look at yourself. Analyze yourself and see what God has given you the great privilege of doing for him in the church. We are saved by grace. We grow by grace. We minister by grace. And perhaps you're here today and you're interested in discovering what God's will for your life. I'll give you eight little steps that you can follow that perhaps will help you a little bit focus on you. It starts by making sure that you have faith in Jesus Christ by his grace and mercy. Understand, it starts there. If you're still wondering whether your works can save you, you're never going to find your spiritual gift. Never. Because you're fooling around in an area you should be way beyond. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, and you should have that down. 
You should understand, I've been saved by God's grace, and that's what I know. So it starts there. Secondly, meet the prerequisites of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Analyze what you're doing in your flesh body. Don't be involved in corrupt stuff. Be involved in holy things. Don't be conformed to this world. Stay in the process of being transformed by the word of God. There's step number two. Step number three, stay focused on renewing your mind on the scriptures and applying them to your life. I mean, that's what happens as you renew your mind on the scriptures and apply them to your life. So you can't conjure these gifts up. You can't just say, I want that gift, so I'm going to do A, B, C and get that gift. It is a grace gift. What you have to do is go to work on you. What I have to do is go to work on me. Fourthly, pray. Ask the Lord to let you discover your gift. That's a wonderful thing for you to do in talking to God. Number five, take advantage of opportunities and doors that God opens. Just walk through doors. You may not succeed at the doors that you walk through. Man, I'll tell you, when we were in Grand Rapids, they asked me to head up an evangelistic program. So what I did is I put cards for every person in our community, and we had an address on them. We decided we'd take Thursday night and we'd go visit every person on the cards. And I fell flat on my face. I had very little success, and I thought, well, I guess I don't have the gift of evangelism. I guess that doesn't work. But at least I walked through the door. I gave it a shot. Take advantage of opportunities and doors that the Lord opens. Honestly, assess yourself. See if it's something you're able to do and enjoy doing. Honestly, take a look at this and say, well, what is it that I have the ability to do? Ask spiritually-minded, truthful people to evaluate you concerning a gift. Truthful people. You know, last week I used the illustration that I said I was going to ask the congregation, I'll say to Mary, Mary, do I look fat and old? And she'll go, no, no, you don't, you don't. And I thought, well, I'm going to ask the congregation. Well, somebody from her congregation came up and said, you don't look fat. But he didn't say you don't look old. (laughs) I've thought about that all week. I've simmered on that. Truthfulness. Truthful people. And finally, assess whether or not When you use your gift, it influences others in a God-honoring way. If it is a supernatural gift, it's going to make a positive impact on the body because that's what the gift is designed to do. A gift is faith operative. You're never going to get a letter or a diploma from heaven that says, here's your gift. But by faith, if you follow these guidelines, God will let you discover yours and he will use that at a maximum level. And that is God's perfect will for our life. But to discover the perfect will of God for our life, we need Jesus Christ in your life. You have to have him with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. So if you've never invited the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life and you want to know, what is my purpose for being here? Where am I headed in life? What does God want me to do? You start right there. You turn your life over to him and that will begin the process of God's perfect will for you. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, right now in this moment, you can settle that. Just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm turning my life over to Jesus Christ. Come in and take it over. Pray something like that. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the privilege we have of being in the family of God. Thank you for every person affiliated with this church. We need them all. We need every one of them. You've put them together here. You're forming a body. We need each other, Lord, and we thank you for this fellowship. We pray you would continue to develop us in ways that do accomplish your perfect will 
for our lives and for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.